From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Open Line is indeed what it sounds like. It's a call-in program. Today, our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. So if you have any questions about the teachings of the Catholic faith or how we arrived at those teachings, give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, I am not going to chop down any trees after the show. I'm not going to sell paper towels after the show. And I'm not going to be a tablecloth for an Italian restaurant after the show. So there, I think I've covered all the comments I've gotten on my shirt today. So oh. <clears throat> that, that covers it. Our host is here every Friday Colin Donovan, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm still parsing the shirt comment, but yeah. anyway, other than that, I'm just good. rolling through all of the suggestions that have been made to me today. Uh, my taste must be just as bad because I think it's a fine <laughs> shirt. <laughs> well, there you go. So, Colin, <clears throat> if we could speak for a moment about your home and native land, yes, she's your queen too. Was and, yes, and. Uh, is as remarkable a human citizen as we have probably seen in her lifetime and probably are likely to see for several lifetimes. And it really it, it mm-hmm. blows me away to think that you can spend, you know, 70 years as the monarch, but even longer than 70 years in the public spotlight with nary a blunder is remarkable. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it is sort of amazing, you know, as a Canadian growing up, uh, she was queen when I was born. She wasn't queen when I was conceived. So that sort of dates how old I am. Uh, so she is, as a, a Canadian, all the only queen that I know, and there are many, anybody uh, under 70 could say that, more or less, under 69 at least. Uh, so it's really... It really is remarkable, and I think the the dignity with which she's held the office, you know, even if you don't agree with the uh, British politics, even if you don't agree with the you know the Anglican Church on much, her own personal dignity and her own Christian faith are so laudable. You know, sometimes practically the only real religiosity that you got out of, I think, you get out of a public figure, is every year she did her Christmas message, and it was clear that she <coughs> believed. 
And I think her husband, Prince Philip, was similar. They, you know, he was born into the Greek royal family, baptized as a Greek Orthodox. Per, uh, parents were killed by the communists in uh, Greece. Uh, he escaped, ended up marrying uh, uh, a young Elizabeth and converting to the Anglican faith because obviously to be the consort, he had to do that. Uh, and yet he, he maintained that as well. It'll be interesting to see how the coming generations of, of the British royal family, especially the, the king and maybe a queen down the road again, uh, are able to do that. Uh, and so I think even as someone whose ancestors had great grudges against the crown, both Scottish ancestors and Irish, uh, I, I think that she is, as you noted, a, a very remarkable person in our lifetime and unlikely uh, to be repeated. We've had other great individuals. I mean, people from her era, people always don't, Winston Churchill, for example, um, certainly in our own days, John Paul II uh, as an individual of, uh, in the particular context of the Catholic faith, a holy and remarkable individual on all levels, erudite intellectually and, and knowledgeable in, in many things and so on. Um, and so there's, I think there will be much to be missed. I think everybody would be watching her son to see how after his long wait for the, for the throne, uh, he does. And uh, he'd be very hard-pressed to uh, achieve greater than his mother. Uh, and I don't know that you'll ever see uh, royalty, roy, any royalty, uh, have a reign such as that, uh, you know, in the future. Some people have piped up in the last 24 hours about the deplorable social mores of the society that she has left us compared to those which she inherited and are trying to lay that at her feet a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's really, really ridiculous. I mean, what, what, is it that, what, what is it that they would expect, expect of her? Especially when you're in a constitutional monarchy, which basically has the royal wings fairly significantly clipped. Um, and maybe, thanks be to God, you know, the, the last non-constitutional monarchs did a great deal of damage to people of religion, Catholics, uh, uh, her uh, predecessor, Henry VIII, and so on. So I don't think anybody would expect of her to in, to intervene in areas other than uh, those which the constitutional structure of the United Kingdom, you know, permitted to her. And I think a lot. One thing that people are lauding is the fact that she was able to stay within those, and yet she did get in her own efforts, you know, like in the Christmas messages and so on, to be able to, uh, you know, to push a a, a position of belief. And that probably doesn't mean, I don't know what percentage of citizens in the United Kingdom in the countries of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern, and Northern Ireland, how, how you know, religiously faithful they are. Uh, but if they simply admired her human virtues, her steadfastness, all going all the way back to World War II, uh, when she didn't, you know, she could have fled the country um, and uh, she could have sought refuge and safety elsewhere, but her whole family stayed in the face of potential Nazi invasion. Uh, she worked in uh, a motor pool on cars, on automobiles. It was, apparently it was very good, would fix her own royal car or, or provide advice to the mechanics when something wasn't working right. You know, so the human virtues are important, and especially when you hold offices. 
Is there anything more needed in our societies on both sides of the Atlantic today than those who have political office? Hers was not political per se, but those who hold a public office adhering to the constitutional limitations of that, whether it's a secular constitution or whether it's ecclesiastical constitution. Everybody's ego pushes them beyond that. Hers did not. She adhered to what she knew was her duty and believed to be her duty before God. And we can argue with the theory of the two swords and the particular role of kings and queens in receiving divine power, especially outside of the historic Catholic countries. But nonetheless, you can't argue against her adherence to what she thought, saw as a divine responsibility and she fulfilled it well. If only the, the secular leaders of the countries of the world would do that, we'd be in a lot better place. So if you juxtapose the Church's social doctrine against the wave of the day, the zeitgeist of the day, the culture of the day, what would Holy Mother Church say about the idea of monarchies in general? Well, I think that's... that's in Mo- the, From a modern perspective. Right. Um, I don't think it makes a judgment. I think there's probably very little support in among theologians for the idea of the two swords. There is a natural basis for this in the recognition that there are spiritual hierarchies. Of course, this is God, the angels, and then the in the church, the, the hierarchy of the church, representing both uh, natural and supernatural hierarchy. And that in nature, there is always those who rise, you know, to the top. Uh, but you you have to, you, I think you have to be, see that whatever there is in the case of natural power, the church and authority, the church has always tried to respect it. And that we saw that in the, in the pagan times when uh, there wasn't any effort to overthrow the Roman emperor, there wasn't any effort to, uh, you know, decry his, his office and role, but rather to live in a faithful Catholic, as a faithful Catholic, in the midst of that world. And we're basically back in that times today, where like the early Christians, we have to deal with secular powers that are not uh, quite content with the role of Christians in political office, political life. And so therefore we have to make those kinds of accommodations ourselves, and also those kinds of uh, forceful resistance uh, where necessary. So I don't think uh, theologically the church has much to say on it, uh, but I think practically it's the role of authority coming from God in some respect, and that should be respected. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Prudence Robertson keeps you informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the overall culture of death on EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly and... We can send EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly directly to your email inbox every week. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Four open lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Ann, a first-time caller in Palm Bay, Florida. Ann, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm a practicing Catholic, and I have a fellow friend who's also a practicing Catholic Mm -hmm. that has recently become a part of the Kingdom of the Divine Will. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done a little bit of research on my own about this, but I'm just calling to see if you can um, sort of shed shed some light on this topic and how I should really navigate through this. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a uh, a movement uh, in in the church that derives from a private revelation uh, by a woman in Italy in the Archdiocese of Trani in southern Italy. Uh, her name was Luisa Picaretta, and uh, she has many remarkable incidents her life in her life of, of uh, stigmata and and other things living on the Eucharist, uh, many private revelations and so on, and so. Part of this is the notion of uh, living in the divine will. In essence, if you are faithful to the, uh, you know, to your responsibilities as a Catholic, to your baptismal promise, all of those who are in grace that are trying to please the Father to uh, satisfy, you know, what we pray in the Our Father, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, uh, is seeking to live in the divine will. That simply means that our will conforms to God's will. And so that should be the goal of every baptized person, every Christian believer. Uh, so that has not been uh, at all a controversial uh, part of this. Um, in the, the revelations themselves, she, she passed away, of course, uh, a number of uh, years ago, and her cause for canonization was entered. Uh, in the archdiocese there, and she uh, went through what's called the documentary process, which the uh, a diocese uh, does when some member of their faithful uh, has a has a uh, reputation of holiness and a reputation of intercession with God. The two things which usually get to kick off or lead to a, a cause being instituted for them. Uh, she was. They did the documentation of her life. Uh, they collected all of the books, uh, all of the writings, uh, which were were available, and, and so they compiled all of that. And the, after the process was over, they judged that she lived a holy life. And so they forwarded in the late 90s, I believe, or uh, was it? No, it's after the millennium, in the two th- early 2000s. Uh, that documentary material, that that those elements and the approval of the tribunal and the archbishop there in Trani, they s- forwarded to the causes of the saints, and they forwarded also all of the writings to be analyzed. Uh, so that's basically where it is right now. Uh, there has been some controversy, especially in the 1990s, which... Uh, I think mostly has dry, die, died down and was mostly in the English-speaking countries because a translation of some of the writings were made that should not have been translated and were essentially uh, purloined and under embargo, and they were translated into uh, English, and an English which gave some very wrong ideas to her writing because every Catholic should have it clear in their mind that the validity of a mystic's uh, teaching and private revelation depends on the church certifying that it is credibly from God. 
and the church does that when it declares the person to have heroic virtues and ends up beatifying them. She is not there, there yet. And so a lot of difficulties was created both for the cause and for the uh, proponents of the divine will in the fact that some very odd ideas of this, as if living in the divine will was something sort of automatic. You said this prayer, and you did these things, and now somehow you were living in the divine will, and this made you the, you know, the, the ultimate Catholic or Christian or whatever. So these ideas are not drawn from the writings. They are distortions of what are in the writings. And so right now it stands that her cause for uh, beatification at this stage is in the uh, congregation or dicastery now for the uh, causes of the saints, and the writings are with the congreg- uh, dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And so what will eventually be done is if she is a uh, recommended for beatification, the church herself will put out a, um, uh, not Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? A critical edition of her writings in Italian. She didn't write in Italian. She wrote in her dialect, which I understand is even hard to completely translate into Italian. So you have to know the dialect. You have to know Italian. And they will get that critical edition. They will have theological footnotes so people don't run with ideas and make more of them than uh, is legitimate and is in keeping with church teaching. And at that point, they can be then translated with the permission of the church into other languages. So it's out there. Uh, It's legitimate to have devotion to her, to pray to her, to use the prayers. Uh, There are books which uh, give biographies of her life. Those those are fine. They have prayer groups, which uh, a bishop may authorize to be in... uh, uh, in in a, in a diocese and so on. So there are legitimate activities related to that. The danger is that people will run ahead of the church, and the effect of that will be negative for the cause because the church always looks at disordered zeal as reflecting badly on the candidate. So people have to be careful in this area, and, and uh, I think in the last decade or so, it seems to be the case that people are, but you can always also get crazy ideas. So uh, I think, you know, cautiously to just tell your friends that bring this up that they have to be careful not to run ahead of the church. That's the obligation of every Catholic in these areas. Does that help, Ann? That is perfect. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. I think, if I'm not mistaken, her confessor, one of her former confessors, has been canonized, I believe. That's right, St. Annabal uh, de Francia. He was her confessor in a number of years and actually got some of her writings, um, the Nihil Obstat, into Italian. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think the main thing there is that nobody questions that this woman lived a holy life. The question is, how do we bring this material? And this is often the case in private revelations, not just this one. But there are a number of these out there, which if you think about the ideas regarding the Sacred Heart and when those were introduced, these are a little bit ahead of the church. And if God is trying to push the church to go in a particular direction that is fruitful in his will, then the church will eventually sanction them. And so devotion to the Sacred Heart and all of those things are taken for granted today. Immaculate Heart, devotion to the Immaculate Heart as well, 
The idea of consecration of the Immaculate Heart since the 50s is clearly formed. You know, so this is the stepwise fashion. What what kills something is when zealots take it in areas that the church will not take it. And when they do that, they reflect poorly on the on the candidate uh, for canonization, and they re- reflect poorly, obviously, on themselves. So people must be patient who believe that she is a saint, as the archbishop in, in Trani did in the tribunal that judged her. Um, and it's sitting at Rome, and there are obstacles, and if they're to be overcome, then the Lord will overcome them. Uh, if not, it will die in the congregation as causes do also. Uh, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Andrea in Columbus, Georgia, listening at EWTN.com. Andrea, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, you're welcome. I was wondering, in the Catholic Church, can you have uh, two tabernacles? Uh, like one in the in the chapel and one in the main sanctuary. Yeah, that's so common. That's that's very common. Um, one thing it depends on the size size of the church. Obviously, if you have a little teeny mission church out in the you know sticks, you're probably going to have one tabernacle and probably be glad that you do. Especially have a priest to hold, say mass and keep it filled with our Lord. Um, in the big, the big church, like in St. Peter's, there is a Blessed Sacrament Chapel on the St. Joseph altar where the large daily masses are held. There's a, uh, there's a tabernacle there, too. I think on some of the many side altars there are tabernacles where the daily mass is celebrated by visiting priests very often, uh, someplace to put the uh, remainder from the celebration of the mass. You know, so that that's quite normal. So I think uh, architecturally uh, is a consideration in terms of not too much proximity, but many parishes have a mass, chapel, slant, perpetual adoration chapel, or something like that, or a reservation chapel, and then also in the main sanctuary, they'll have a tabernacle for the ready service of particular masses and so on. So that's that's quite normal, and all of that is governed by the bishop and what permissions he will uh, give for that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Timothy writes in, in the New Testament, Paul talks about admonishing the sinner. How can we do that without making people angry? What is the right time to do this? Oh, this is the big question of prudence. Yes, fraternal correction is one of the hardest things to do. Um. You can you you should do it obviously taking account of your audience. Uh, are you going to go up to a person who is anti-Catholic, anti-Christian, pagan type, and admonish them? Do you really expect to have any traction uh, and change their heart or do anything like that? Uh, you know, unlikely. So prudence involves you know knowing the person you wish to correct, uh, knowing the um, uh, knowing the circumstances knowing how to speak to them. Uh, you, anybody speaks publicly to others takes regard of their audience. What's a way to t- get to this audience? If you're a public speaker on a topic, you're going to try to, what will be, what will be moving to this audience? What will, you know, move them to think like us, uh, you know, to conclude as, 
as I have concluded in this particular area or others uh, have concluded. So that's all important. Now, over and above the prudential dimension of, of all of those things, yes, there will be times when your heart just cries out to rebuke sin. And then if you feel confident that this is not coming from your pride or whatever, then yes, even when you don't know the circumstances, God can inspire you to do this. And that's what the prophets did. Uh, and so I think you take account of the circumstances when you can, but you also know there will be times when your heart tells you to publicly rebuke sin and where it's uh, and when those occasions are. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Ken writes in, are there any ways of knowing if someone is demonically possessed? The Church has ways. The Church's Roman ritual, uh, which guides priests uh, in the ministry of exorcism, uh, distinguishes that. We have to remember that the Church's first conclusion or first leap of logic is not to the preternatural, which is the world of the angels, that which is above human reach and human nature and below the supernatural, God's realm. And so it doesn't jump to that presence. It looks for signs, and it recognizes that between the the presence of natural causes, so mental illness, uh, many of the behaviors related to individuals uh, who will later be, you know, say, exercised, uh, get first classified as, uh, as natural, as mental illness. So for, for those of my generation who saw the Exorcist movie, uh, that was the case there. It was based upon a true case. Uh, the victim was a, a boy rather than a girl, as in the movie. But uh, the the pattern and the and the way the movie flowed is is still the same, and that is uh, the parents had sought out the help of psychiatry, and at a certain point, psychiatry said, "Well, we can help you. You should see a priest." Now they didn't say that necessarily because they believe in psychiatry or believe in the in priests and in the supernatural, but. Uh, they certainly believe that, well, maybe if a person has talked themselves into some uh, supernatural-like form of life, uh, demonic or whatever, they can be talked out of it. In other words, they saw it as a psychological fix and not as a, uh, as a moral or a supernatural fix. Hey, but, that's, oops, I'm sorry, but, that's, but that's how it starts. And so when the Church gets brought into these situations, it observes, and it makes a judgment whether uh, there is more to it than that. And it looks for signs of the preternatural, and that is the person who is at this point still putatively uh, uh, possessed, whether they do or say things which uh, they cannot, uh, humanly they cannot do. So to know things happening afar that they don't that they, they, they don't have knowledge of, but yet they know uh, simultaneously with what is that's going on, sort of a far-seeing, if you will. 
uh, to be able to speak languages they never learned. Uh, they never learned Latin, and they speak to the priest in Latin or in Greek or Aramaic or any other language, uh, for that matter, that they never learned. Or they do things of a physical nature, such as to levitate off the bed or to um, you know, do unusual things like that, to move objects by their will, things which spirits can do but which human beings natively we can't do. So these are the preternatural signs that on observation would lead the priest to conclude that there is a likely case of possession and to seek the permission to exercise the individual from his bishop. So that's how you get to that, and uh, it is a, it's a process. And uh, more and more in the last, during my lifetime certainly, I've seen more and more bishops have taken account of this. They see, we see the rise of the pagan in our world, this absolutely horrific, uh, uh, what's it called, the wicker man thing or something they hold. It's basically a pagan festival uh, they resumed holding now that COVID is ostensibly over. I mean, the, the re revival of paganism has described as the return of the old gods, the old Germanic and Celtic gods that St. Patrick and St. Boniface and all the other saints cast out of countries have now come back in full force. And I think this is, this is evident in the rise of the number of people that are getting involved in uh, pagan and neo-pagan activities as well as manifesting uh, a deep and profound interest in the occult and even getting possessed. And the church is seeing that, and most dioceses now probably have a priest. They have sort of not necessarily on call like this is like the, you know, the the paramedics that you know, ready to go out in the moment's nose or anything, but a priest who is trained in this and is prepared to act when the bishop tells him to act or to investigate uh, in order to see if he needs to act. So. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Next up is Chris, a first-time caller in Loveland, Colorado, listening on the EWTN app. Chris, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is about the Catholic versus Presbyterian view of Christ's death. Mm -hmm. I was at a funeral not long ago, and multiple times they talked about the wrath of God, and it seemed to me that if that were why Christ was crucified, that would be very unjust as an innocent victim, but very little view of sacrifice. Can mm -hmm. you sort of position these for me? I, sure. I don't understand. Yeah, I, I think you have to go uh, start back in the Old Testament. Uh, St. Paul says that the law was given as a tutor, in other words, what did, what did the Israelites need to learn? They needed to learn justice. So we can't throw justice out of the question. And that's why even Catholics over the centuries have spoken about the fact that the, the guilt of the sins of man needed to be repaired, this idea of reparation. We use that every day. You know, if uh, I loan a book to Jack and he goes and throws it on the barbecue, barbecue in order to cook his steak or something, he owes me a book and I would expect him to be able to give me the money for it. Or, so the idea of reparation through when, in crimes, whether material crimes or spiritual crimes, this is, uh, you know, th this is an absolute starting point for all of this. And that's what the Israelites need to know. Christ came along and said he was not throwing out the law, in other words, not throwing out the ideas of justice, but perfecting it in charity. 
And I think we look at the, uh, the atonement as containing both of those elements. There is the weight of this offense against God, the Father, which needed to repair, and obviously against the, the divine nature itself, that needed to be repaired. So that Christ's sacrifice did that, that is not an insignificant thing. That's to be accounted for, that's to be recognized, and you will find that language in Catholic authors as well. But if that's where you stay, and some theories of the matter sort of end there, is if everything is wrath and justice and so on, and a very Calvinist perspective often takes this, you know, the commandments and the law and the wrath of God and that. So those, uh, those bodies, uh, Christian bodies, that derive from uh, a Calvinist theology will often have those elements to it. But when you look at it, well, what is being fulfilled there? What is the thing that Christ came to die for? Yes, he loves the Father, and certainly the offense of that sin he would have wanted to repair, but the other part of that is he loved the sinners, and how was he to restore them? So that which led him, that which drove him, indeed that which brought about the incarnation, the Holy Spirit, is love, the spirit of love. So you can't, it's not an either or, it has to be joined together to understand that in Christ all of the values of justice and reparation and these things which necessarily fall logically from the consequences of sin. We do sin, there's ripples, we can't stop the ripples, but we got to at least tell the person we're sorry, we've got to return what we stole, we've got to give an account of ourselves before God, we have to demonstrate sorrow. All of these justice elements have to be fulfilled. But what is at the heart of it? Is it the love of God or is it the fear of punishment? So this is why the church has two languages of contrition and of sorrow. In other words, there is what's called attrition, and that is, I'm sorry because, man, I don't want to go to hell. That's imperfect sorrow. Then there's perfect contrition. I'm sorry because... Lord, you are the greatest God, you are the good God, and I have offended you who are so good. That's, that's real contrition, real sorrow, perfect contrition. And so the church doesn't say, no, forget about attrition, forget about satisfying justice, but rather ought to have love. And Christ's love of the Father had to have been the ultimate motive, and that certainly passes through the question of sin and redemption. And, but his love of us also, because that is the desire to lift us out of the misery of our sin, to be able to present us whole and entire to the Father. And you find that language in the, in the letters of Paul and in the, in the New Testament generally, that it's to present us whole and entire. It's not just the, to pay a debt. It's got to be paying the debt because the Father was offended, but for this love of both the Father and the love of us, this was done. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. A big congratulations to our good partners at Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They're celebrating 26 years on the air this week. Congratulations to Al Cresta, Mike Jones, and the entire team at WDEO and WMAX. Our sincere thanks for producing 
and airing solid Catholic programming for all of us. Uh, happy anniversary to the good folks at Ave Maria Radio. 833-288-EWTN, wide open phone lines, 833-288-3986. Adam writes in, how can I go from the Latin rite to an Eastern rite? Um, well, if you mean can I get up and put my shoes on in the morning, on Sunday morning, and go over to an Eastern rite Catholic liturgy, you're free to do that. However, to change rites, to change from the Roman rite to an Eastern rite, usually there has to be a cause, such as to marry into that rite, and then you'd want to choose for the sake of, you know, comity and the marriage for the sake of the children. You choose the Latin rite, or you choose the, uh, uh, the, you know, the Eastern rite. Here in Birmingham, where we have both Catholic Melkites and Catholic Maronites, that kind of decision is made all the time. They choose to, you know celebrate all at the, the the Latin church, or they go to the Maronites, to St. Elias, or they go over to St. George's, uh, and they make that decision. They, do need, they don't even have to formally change rights to do that. Uh, but you can formally change rights, and that requires the circumstances, and I believe the norms require that both the bishop of where you're coming from and the bishop of the right you wish to go to, uh, they all have a say in the process as well. And if I'm not mistaken, you can only do that once in your lifetime. Yeah, it's it's not a revolving door that you can go back and forth. That only makes sense because at the second try, you'd be uh, uh, you probably don't want to be in the room where that's discussed. <laughs> <laughs> Samantha wants to know why can't non-Catholics use the sacrament of confession? Well, because they're 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 not Catholics. If they really uh, if they really believe that, then you would think the thing to do is to join the church. Uh, it has been given. Um, I think we had a similar topic here a couple weeks ago, uh, especially in warfare. Catholic chaplains. Uh, you know, I was in the Navy, and I remember talking to uh, uh, to uh, a captain. He was the the he was the chaplain of the base uh, chapel in Pearl Harbor in those days, and he had been with the First Marine Division in Vietnam. You know, and he telling some stories about that to me, and. You know, there you've got to, if if you need to give absolution to belt before the before a battle, there will be a lot of non-Catholics. They'll be happy to have that absolution, and if they're baptized, uh, it can be valid in those circumstances. So those are those are the occasions, natural disasters, uh, but uh, it's not a general thing. Um, I think. You know, it sort of begs the question of what do you really believe if you're coming to the Catholic priest and you're not going to Pastor Bob uh, to, to tell your sins. If you think you ought to go to the Catholic priest, then maybe you ought to take the step and become a Catholic. Next up is Katie. She is a first-time caller in Green Bay, Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Katie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. So I I am a new Catholic, like brand new, uh, con- just converted over the Easter vigil this last year. So I'm learning a lot. Um, and I am a nurse practitioner, medical mm-hmm. provider. And I, since I've been learning a lot about like birth control and the Catholic teachings, I've been struggling with how I practice as a family practice provider mm-hmm. where, where I'm re- to prescribe birth control 
and I, I'm not really yeah. sure how to yeah. do that. Right. Um, well, and you, you really shouldn't because you're a formal part of the process of the person using something which the church then considers gravely immoral. Um, there, are, there are ways in which—let's look at it this way. Birth control is ultimately the use of a drug, typically two drugs, some version of estrogen and from, from some version of progesterone. And, you know, it used to be they were all estrogen, and now they're a little bit of a mix of both. That can be given for other medical reasons. Women with um, um, endometriosis, I think, use it fruitfully. Women in menopause use those uh, drugs uh, fruitfully in order to lessen the effects of it. And those are all moral uses. But to prescribe it for the, and those could be prescribed for those intended uses, to prescribe it for as to, in order to prevent conception, however, that's what the church says is morally wrong. So it's, it's not the drugs. The drug is not evil in and of itself, but it's the medical, it's the reason for which that drug is used and that justifies its use in this case, at least in the minds of the person who wants to use it. And in Catholic teaching, the use of artificial contraception for prevention of, of uh, pregnancy uh, is gravely sinful and gravely wrong, objectively so, not by the mind of the church, but uh, from the very early days of the church, when even in the first century, uh, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, uh, talked about taking drugs uh, to cause the child to abort or to prevent uh, pregnancy. Uh, and so the history of the church n not permitting this as an affront against the dignity of marriage and the dignity of new life uh, is continuous in its 2,000 years history. So that's the difficulty. Uh, you know what you would do well to do? And that is if you go on the site of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, ncbcenter.org, and you look there in their book, they, uh, in their store, you will find that they have the resources to help you on different topics because this will come up in, in other ways. Uh, the other areas, I'm not sure what nurse, nurse practitioners can, uh, uh, in terms of their association, uh, but as a, a moral theologian, I am an associate member of the Catholic Medical Association. I'm not sure uh, perhaps your profession can be as well. There is another youth, useful resource, and uh, our Saturday morning show, was it Doctor to Doctor? Doctor, Doctor. Doctor, Doctor. Drop the two in that. <laughs> Doctor, Doctor. They'll get good information, uh, Catholic applications to medical circumstances. So the resources are out there because in our day and age with what's going on in bioethics and technology and that, uh, these kinds of things, this is a rather simple case. It's been around since the pill was invented in the late 50s and began to be used in the 60s. I mean, every, every year there's something new in bioscience that has a potential offense against the dignity, human dignity associated with it. So you need to stay up on that because this will come up in other areas as well, and this is perhaps one of the most simple ones. But fine, you're looking for the dis. The, the moral uses of these very same drugs, if you will, these same biologically active chemicals, versus the immoral. That's the dividing line.
Does that help, Katie? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, Back to the confession topic. Lionel wants to know, is it true that a person cannot go to confession if they are in a state of excommunication? Okay. um, So many caveats on that. There's excommunications which are publicly expressed by the bishop. There are people who are excommunicated before God because he knows that they are heretics, apostates, based on their own actions. actions. Okay, so that's, that's the big question. And when you tell your story to a priest in confession, he will be able to discern whether it's one for which he has the faculties to absolve or he has to anonymously, of course, request the the absolution from the excommunication. In the case of a formal excommunication, uh, a declared excommunication is the canonical term. In that case, he will he will get it from whoever in the in the diocese and the bishop sometimes gives faculties to particular priests in the diocese to do that. So, the thing to do is you go to confession, you tell your story. The priest should know what he can and cannot do and guide you say, come back in a week, I will have an answer on a particular case. And he would come back and say, yes, you've been absolved from that, if it was declared. So that's the the best situation. Just, you know, ask in the confessional if you think you are. And I think if you're not declared excommunicant, you're probably good to go. And if you are, then he may have to seek help otherwise. There is certain individuals, however, and Father John Paul would not let me go if I didn't mention that uh, Missionaries of Mercy, which is a special faculty which Pope Francis established several years ago during the Year of Mercy, and priests from all over the world have this faculty. And I mentioned him because he was like, I think he's number two card carrier or something like that. Um, There are priests, uh, probably even in your diocese, who are Missionaries of Mercy. And they have rather broad faculties in this respect, given by the Pope himself, because he wanted people to have their sins forgiven, to have good, safe consciences and return to the faith life of the church. And so uh, he did that. It's a real act of mercy. And uh, so there's an option as well. Uh, Andy writes in, after a saint is canonized, if it was found out that the saint committed a grievous crime in their lifetime, does it affect their canonization? Well, I mean, what saint probably, look at our list of saints. When you, uh, Augustine, of course, was not canonized by the formal process, but you could look at any number of, of saints who lived rather horrific lives uh, and nonetheless um, ended up being canonized. Because what the church is looking for is not that they were born without sin and lived without sin. We know the one person, other than God himself, who became man, uh, of whom that can be said. So potentially... Many of the saints uh, will fall into that category, but it's that they lived with heroic virtue, and they lived in that, certainly when they died, uh, and on this basis they had done what Christ wanted all of us to do, to persevere in faith and to grow in virtue and to become perfect like the Father. And some have had said of them, I think it was said of the little little flower and a set of others, others as well who... Priests who heard their, 
never co- committed a deliberate mortal sin or de- deliberate venial sin even. Uh, in other words, they so closely uh, followed our Lord throughout their life that even if they, if they sinned, it was material because they didn't know it was a sin and not because they deliberately said, oh, this is trivial, I'm going to do it anyway, it's only a venial sin after all. They never did that. Uh, so that's not the criteria, but how they died before God and how they lived and how, how men and women of the world recognize in them the holiness that Christ called all of us to. And we have a caller on the line now that would like to know if we can be repeatedly forgiven if we commit the same things over and over. Well, you might get raked over the coals a little bit, but uh, you won't be the first person and you won't be the last person to go to confession who has been fighting some you know, weakness for a long time in their life. So just go to confession and don't worry about it. And then finally, Sarah writes in, how can God be loving if he knows the destination of a person is hell, yet he still creates them? Well, what would he have done if he had said, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, let's say, annihilate by not creating from the very beginning because I know they will abuse their free will? Then it's not really much of a gift. You know, it's like... Uh, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give only to my good Chris, uh, Christmas presents, only to my good children, and to the others, they can eat cake. Well, they probably wouldn't eat cake, but something. <laughs> they can know. have coal. They can have coal. There you go. Uh, no, I, I think it, it's the loving God who created, knowing that he could bring good out of the evil that would be done. And right from the beginning of our human race, uh, the first two did evil. And out of that came so, so much. We say it every Easter. Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam, which gave to us so great a Redeemer. So that's the fruits of sin in the God, God's eyes, and that is that he can break good out of it. And in the end, it's in our will to accept his light, his grace, his peace, or to not accept. And you know, there's really no, in our finite intellect, there's no way to really make us understand how this works, but one of the best illustrations I heard was, you know, God can look down on every aspect of a race from above and know who's going to win without affecting the outcome. Right, yeah, Yeah. because he gives us the freedom and he gives them the right to be able to develop the athletic prowess in order to win (laughs) or not. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it Monday. Until then, God bless.